A lot of leaders and innovators talk about disrupting healthcare, but what does that really mean? And how does one actually do it? On Life-Centered Healthcare, we dive into these questions and more, talking to innovators who are leveraging Clay Christensen's theories to transform our healthcare ecosystem. I'm Ann Summers-Hogg, Director of Healthcare at the Clayton Christensen Institute, and I hope these stories help inspire you along your journey to transform health and care. Welcome back, listeners. I'm thrilled to be back today after maternity leave, and it's great to be back in the studio with Dr. Zev Newworth. Today, we'll be talking about his newest book, Beyond the Walls, Megatrends, Movements, and Market Disruptors. We actually discussed so much in today's conversation that we're sharing it in two parts. So across these two episodes, you'll hear us tackle a number of healthcare hot topics. We'll discuss drivers of health, the concept of contextual care, vertical integration and partnerships, as well as a few key theories. Mostly, we'll look through the lens of business model theory, disruptive innovation, and jobs to be done. Now, before we dive in, I want to introduce you to Zev. If you don't know, Dr. Newworth is a healthcare executive with over 15 years of clinical practice and over 15 years of experience in clinical operations, process improvement, population health, and innovation. He most recently served as the Chief of Care Transformation at Atrium Health, now part of Advocate Health. In 2017, Dr. Newworth launched an award-winning healthcare podcast entitled Creating a New Healthcare with nearly 160 episodes to date. If you haven't listened, I highly suggest that you do after you've listened to this episode. In 2019, he published his first book, Reframing Healthcare, a roadmap for creating disruptive change, which achieved number one status on Amazon in the category of hospital and health policy. In September, Dr. Newworth published a second book, Beyond the Walls. This book is the topic of our conversation today, and it has already achieved the number one new release on Amazon hospital administration and healthcare delivery. Zev is an alum of Tufts University and the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He received a master's in healthcare management from the Harvard School of Public Health. He also lectures at the Yale School of Public Health, as well as the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm lucky to call Zev a colleague and a friend. So without further ado, let's jump in. Zev, I like to start with why. Could you share why you wrote Beyond the Walls? And also, what you mean by that phrase? I started, my career was day job, uh, physician, then manager, physician manager, then physician executive and process improvement and quality improvement and chief medical officer and then chief clinical executive and population health director and, and, and strategy and care transformation. And that was sort of my trajectory in, in my so-called day job, in my profession, my career. And then about 10 years ago, a number of things happened to me. They were professional and personal and really both. And I think Adam Summers, as, as you know, one of which was that my own mother passed away from a, an elective procedure in a fantastic hospital with phenomenal physicians and, and teams. And it was a completely preventable death. And what's shocking about that to me, obviously, personally, it, it is still traumatic to myself and my family, even seven years after the fact. But what's shocking is that that is a reality for hundreds of families every single day, that they lose a loved one in a completely preventable situation. And 
there is no other industry that would accept that. If this happened in the airline industry or any other industry, you know, it would stop, dead stop, and something would be done about it. And again, I'm not criticizing, I'm just sharing the truth and the reality. And whether you believe it or not, the the numbers show somewhere around 400,000 people in America, in the United States of America, die every year in hospital systems, in healthcare systems, preventable deaths. And whether you you think it's a little lower or a little, little higher is not, we could debate that and look at the literature, but the point is that it's true and it's real. And so that happened with my mother. Then within the same year, my own doctor, my primary care doctor, who was actually a colleague where I was working, committed suicide. He was seeing patients all week long. I had actually spoken to him earlier in the week on the phone. And I I will never forgive myself because I heard something in his voice that I didn't follow up on. And that Friday evening, after a full week of seeing patients, he went, got into his car, drove to a park, pulled out a handgun and shot himself in the head. And again, the sad factor is sad fact is that that's not an isolated incident that is happens every single day in this country, and it belies a much bigger issue within healthcare. You know, again, one out of every two doctors are burnt out, or they talk about it now. The experts talk about moral injury, which is very, very real and very upsetting to think about. And so, you know, you go on and on and on. And I just had this epiphany in my career at that point in time, about eight, nine. 10 years ago, that what we were doing was incremental. And it, was, it wasn't going to solve the existential crisis. And I mean, we are in an existential crisis, whether you look, about, look at affordability, look at access, look at inequities of care, look at the, the racism, sexism, ableism, all these other isms that are embedded in the system. We needed to do something that was divergent and different. And so I did what I, you know, I was really trying to figure out what I could do. And I began to, like you're doing now, I began to interview positive deviants, people who are really changing healthcare, who were doing something, building something, creating something, new initiatives, new programs, new companies that were really fighting these isms and combating them head on and supplanting them, replacing them with another ism, which was humanism. And it was through these interviews that I learned hopefulness in healthcare. And that's what I've been on, this journey of learned hopefulness for the past decade. In doing that, beginning to, you know, we know this to be true, whatever you pay attention to, whatever you look at, and this is true in all aspects of our lives, professional or otherwise, what you look at and pay attention to, where your mind goes to, where your ears, where your heart goes to, that's where you go. That's the direction you move in. I was sharing with someone that I, I took a driving lesson with my son recently, who's a teenager who's early on in his driving. And the instructor said, wherever you look, that's where the car is going to go. So if you're looking off to the side, the car will veer to the side. I remember I took skiing lessons a number of years ago when I was a younger person. And the instructor, the first thing the instructor said, when you go and ski, wherever you're looking is where you're going to go. So if you're near a tree, do not look at the tree. Look at the space between the trees or around the trees because that's where you go. your body will automatically go. And I think that is so true for all of us. Where we look, where we shine a light, what we talk about, what we focus on is where we're going to spend our time, energy, and where we're going to spend our money. And so for me, 
this this activity really is a journey into opportunity into the possibilities into into hopefulness and it is really about creating a new healthcare and it's not based on you know when you use the word hope it's not based on an idea or a theory this is based on reality i'm an empiricist and i look for what's happening what's real and there there are always, always examples of people who are ahead of where we are, who've diverged, and we can learn from them and build on them. One of a a professor from a business school I listened to recently said, the literature in healthcare will never catch up in terms of delivery. We will never have those kinds of studies we need to make 100% definitive decisions in healthcare delivery, whether that's policy or delivery. What we need to do is, and I'm using his words, we need to look for exemplars. And that's what I've been doing. I've been looking for and finding exemplars. And that's what you've done. I love how you you started with a story about three negative experiences that really showcase the crisis that is healthcare in the United States. But that spurred you to write a book about what is good in healthcare. You didn't write about what the problem was. You wrote about what was right in healthcare. And that was a different lens that the industry really needs, which I think really makes this book stand apart. And the the concept of hopefulness versus hopelessness. You really took three situations which, which could have been perceived as hopeless. Preventable death, physician suicide, and the Groundhog Day meeting that you reference at the beginning of the book. Those are helpless situations, but you took helplessness and you turned it into hopefulness. And building on that, in the introduction, you quote, Clay Christensen, you say, when the business world encounters an intractable management problem, it's a sign that business executives and scholars are getting something wrong, that there isn't yet a satisfactory theory for what's causing the problem and under what circumstance it can be overcome. What is the problem that you're trying to solve with your beyond the walls movement? Or said differently, what's the progress that you hope people hire this movement to achieve? The problems are, there are numerous problems in healthcare. And you mentioned the Groundhog Day. And so for those who haven't read the book, what I reference there is about the time where I started to have these, what I called my matrix moments, a reference to the movie, The Matrix, where I realized that the reality we were living in it was in some ways quite opaque. In fact, I, I think very few people would that would argue with me that the healthcare system is not only beyond complex, and I mean beyond complex on so many levels, for those who are trying to be, who are consumers of it for sure, but also even those within the healthcare system, it is just overly complex and overly opaque. And I was in a meeting where we were talking about a problem of access. And all of a sudden I had this bizarre recall that I'd been in the same meeting with the same doctors and the same, you know, the same people in white coats and the same people in suits and and, and ties, administrators, and about the same exact problem, just like three or four years ago. And we were talking about the problem in the same exact way. And we were coming up with similar solutions. Now, yes, some of the technology was advanced, but it was fundamentally the same. And then I was thinking about that. It was like a little bit of a flashback and a little bit unnerving. And then all of a sudden, I remembered a meeting at a different healthcare system that I'd been employed in 10 years before that, having the same conversation, basically in the same conceptual framework. And I realized then that we really needed to really reframe. And I say reframe because it goes beyond reimagining. Reframe is a concept. It actually, believe it or not, it's a concept I, I 
I sort of made up the word or, or, or used it in a way that was quite naive, but it just came to me, you know, through, through lots and lots of these discussions and interviews. But reframe is literally a concept that has been used for, for hundreds and hundreds of years in different ways in science and religion and philosophy. And it's the notion of a really different orientation. Might, some might recall the work of Kuhn talking about the paradigms in science and how science advances by by essentially reframing or reorientations that makes these leaps. And I think that that's what we need to do in healthcare. We need to reframe and we need to, I use the word in my current book, Beyond. Beyond does not mean outside, which is something I didn't explain explicitly in the book. And I've now had to talk to a lot of people about it because they say, oh, you talk about people outside. And I was like, no, no, no. If I wanted to say outside the walls, I would have said outside the walls. I said beyond. And beyond is not outside. Beyond is transcending the walls. And that's what, what I'm talking about. And to transcend the walls, it's not about scaling the walls. It's about transcending them. And what that requires is making the walls irrelevant. And that requires a different orientation. And I think that's what Clayton and many, many other visionary leaders have talked about. If we keep on doing, I mean, right, the, the definition of insanity, which others have talked about, freons. So we, you know, if we're going to just do what we're doing better, there's nothing wrong with that, except it's not going to get us out of the dilemma we're in. The problems in healthcare are super complex. They're not simple, linear problems, and they require us to actually come at it from a very, very different way. I'm so glad you explained that, that beyond doesn't mean outside. It actually means making the walls irrelevant. And you had a quote in the book that I'm probably not going to get exactly right, but it was something along the lines of, staying within the walls is a sign of vulnerability, not strength. And that flipped the paradigm on its head to me. Yeah. So the beyond, you know, the walls, the metaphor I use, and I touch upon it lightly, but I've been talking about it more, is very much a, a talk. Think about like the walls, if you want to go back to the to the medieval times, to the dark ages. In medieval times, we had walled cities, right? And right. Edinburgh, Florence, Paris, London, on and on and on. And these walls at the time, they were really, really important and really relevant. And they were there for protection. But as we, you know, in the late 1400s and as we got into the 1500s and we shifted into the age of enlightenment, into the Renaissance, the walls actually went from being an asset to being a liability and a vulnerability. Because if we had stayed within those walls, you could not have the, the commerce, the communication, the advancement of culture, the conceptual breakthroughs. And so in order, you know, one of the most critical things was we, you didn't, and by the way, you didn't have to, you didn't have to break the walls down or take them down. They became, right? I mean, now we go and visit these places and it's cute, right? It's, it's a tourist thing. And that's essentially what happened is the walls became less and less relevant. They became more of a vulnerability, more of a liability. I think very much that we are in that transition zone now in American healthcare and probably healthcare across the globe is we, we have been in my career over the last 40 or 50 years, we have been in the dark ages of healthcare delivery. I know there have been tremendous advances in science and, and medical technology. They're amazing. But we also know that that is never the answer. Those are enablers. We are in a moment where we can transcend the walls. We have the opportunity in our lifetime, in fact, in our career time, I think, to advance into a renaissance of healthcare delivery. But we have to understand the moment we're in and we have to understand what it is we have to do. And that's what fundamentally, that was the purpose of my book, I outline with real stories 
the three domains, the three strategies we have to advance together. And I could explain more about that if we are going to go from the dark ages to the Renaissance. And I will add in Summers, a lot of folks have, have been emailing me and, and a lot of experts and saying they, they believe that we could slide back easily well into the dark ages for the next few decades if we're not intentional about where where we are and where we might go. Right. And that's what you lay out in the book is who are those innovators that are going beyond the walls, who are thinking about how to meet people where they are and really change the way healthcare is delivered. And one of the first concepts you talk about after the introduction is the importance of the point of need becoming the point of care. And to your assets and liabilities comment just a moment ago, it makes me think about how all of the bricks and mortar assets of traditional healthcare entities are becoming more and more liabilities as the point of need becomes the point of care. But could you talk more about what do you mean by this phrase, the point of need becoming the point of care, and how is it making care more accessible and affordable for consumers? The first domain of the three I talk about in the book, and and it's briefly, it's the digital revolution, which most people really don't understand how humanizing that could be and that is. The the second one is, in fact, the humanistic movements that are, are in healthcare. And the third domain is the market disruptions, which is about how organizations are, are partnering and coalescing and combining in new and different ways and, and relating in different ways. And so those are the three domains. In the digital revolution, I talk about the the fact that the point of care when so for those of us who are in healthcare especially on a daily basis when we say point of care we mean the the doctor's exam room or the surgical suite or the hospital or the ED or the urgent care center that's the point of care that's how we use that term and so the the point of care is what's happening with the digital revolution is the point of care has already shifted and is continuing to and that momentum is just moving rapidly to the point of need and the point of need is where you and I are as people so an example of that is just one quick example the treatment of diabetes so in the past and this is the way i practiced medicine I would see a patient with diabetes, you know, type 2 diabetes, let's say, and I would see them two or three times a year. They would come to me and they would have on a notebook scratched out, scribbled out numbers of their sugars, like, you know, so their glucose levels in the morning, before breakfast, you know, after lunch and, you know, at dinner time and at night. And I would look at these numbers and I would say, okay, you know, kind of this, you know, ballistic, you know, throwing a missile out there or, or cannonball out there. And I would say, you know what, let's go down on this, up on this, you know, change this medication, et cetera, et cetera. And then I would say, go and I'll see you again in a month or two months or three months. And that was the state of the art. You know, that wasn't just me. That was the state of the art. It still is the state of the art. Then came along companies like Livongo and Verta and Omada, which, which was really probably the first I interviewed and, and so many others now in that genre of saying, no, 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 no. When I take my sugar, okay, given we have this technology and at this point in time, it's literally off the shelf. We could actually respond to your sugar level now, especially if it's too high or it's too low. We could literally in seconds have you connected to an expert who can help guide you. And even there's certain automation that's already been built in. And so it's really shifting the point of care to the point of need, where we are living right now, where we are living our lives when we need it. Another example is I just had surgery. Let's say I'm 80 years old, just had an open heart surgery. 
I get discharged. It's I'm at home. It's three o'clock in the morning. I get up to go to the bathroom and I have this sudden pain throughout my chest. Now, typically in the present moment, what would I do? I would probably just hope it goes away, wait till the morning when I can call my doctor, you know, when they get in, the offices open up or do I go to an emergency room or, you know, what do I do? Or do I call a service and then hope and wait for, you know, someone to answer back? The technology now is available where literally through technology, you can get an immediate response literally at three o'clock in the morning, escalated to a professional to relieve your anxiety because that's what you're really scared, right? You're scared out of your mind. You know, am I dying? Am I having a heart attack? What's going on? Did I just destroy the stitches in my chest? And so uh, there are multiple, multiple examples of this, including the hospital at home example, which I, which I have a whole chapter on, where literally hospital level care, and we know at this point in time, somewhere between 40 to 60% of all current hospitalizations could be done in the home. And now when I make that statement, and this is backed by years of research right now and years of studies, the care, hospital care in the home is not as good as hospital care in the hospital. It's better. It's lower cost. It's more convenient. There is reduced mortality, reduced morbidity, reduced falls. I'm going to make the statement Hospital care in the home is better than hospital care in the hospital for a significant percentage of hospitalizations. That's the science. That's the evidence. And again, that's the point of care now being shifted to the point of need. I love that example. And it's actually a great segue into the next topic that I wanted to talk about, which is the new business models that you talk about in the first part of the book. And we know multiple new business models are springing up across the healthcare landscape. You mentioned Omada Health, Renee, Transcarent, Alina Health, more. These are all net new business models, new business models that have been built from scratch. And listeners will recall that I often hearken back to the business model and note that once established, business models are quite resistant to change. That doesn't mean they can't be changed, but they're very resistant as they harden over time. So could you share some examples of incumbents that have altered their business model in order to go beyond the walls? Well, I have a whole chapter on this and, you know, it's really about the new partnerships, but it is to your point about new business models. I think you're spot on and I completely agree with you that it's very hard to change, you know, legacy business models that are, are core. So here's a couple of examples. The the Hospital for Special Surgery in, in Manhattan, New York City, one of the internationally best musculoskeletal hospitals, right, in, in, in the world, and not just in the country, but in the world. And they, during the pandemic, they began to do virtual visits for physical rehab. And they realized, wow, this is actually working. This is really good. We can get to many, many more patients, much more convenient for them, lower cost, much more accessible. And we can actually really help people with musculoskeletal issues through physical rehab. So the question they, you know, they were struggling with this because it's not core part of their business model, as you point out. And we all know, for those of us who have been in large organizations or even medium-sized organizations, it's very, very hard to take a new project or program and run it up the ladder. I, I actually call it running the gauntlet. And because there's core businesses or business models within the business model, and so now you're competing. You're competing for resources, for executive time, for a championship. Uh, you're competing with IT for all the hundreds and hundreds of priorities they have. 
And so they realized that they were not going to be able to change the business model. They didn't want to dilute it or detract from it. And so they decided that they were going to do something really, really bold. I take my hat off to them. They're not the only ones. I have a whole chapter on examples of this. But they decided they were going to spin it off as a separate company. And they they did. They spun off a separate company called Right Move. That was so now they created a new business model that is still part of HSS, but it's it's subsidiary to it. So they set it up as an autonomous business That's exactly. unit off to the side, away from the core operations, where it was far enough away that it wasn't in direct competition for all of those resources that you were just calling out, right? Like IT and HR. and Yes, yes, yes. And yes, that it is, I would say this is a lesson from Clayton Christensen's book. So, But what they did in addition, which I think is super, super brilliant with others have done, I have other numerous examples of this, is that in order to even lessen the competition, the internal competition for resources, they decided to partner with a VC firm. Now, again, really, really radically new. I think if you had said this, you know, three, four, five years ago, people would have been like appalled. Not anymore. So they partnered with a a VC firm, I believe it was Flare Capital and, and others that Flare Capital brought in. And that organization brought in some really, really important things. First of all, they brought in money. So I think it was something like $20 million in initial investment. So no longer was this virtual physical rehab having to compete with the internal resources within the hospital for special surgery. Money was actually being infused in to support this new entity, this new subsidiary business model. It's not only the funds but the venture capital firm knows how to do startups, right? They, they have the expertise, they have experts. So they bring in all this expertise. Here's how you do this in a way that will in- increase the, the likelihood of this being successful. Not only that, they have access to experienced executives and startups from all over the country. So they hired one of the best people they could find, and they did. They hired an amazing entrepreneurial leader who knows how to do this. And that's all that, you know, that came in through this partnership with a VC. So that's a, an example. If you, if you have time, another quick, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that's a great example. And I would point folks to the, to the chapter to read more. I just want to hearken back that what they did that as an incumbent business allowed them to succeed was they didn't keep this potentially disruptive business model of lower cost, more accessible virtual rehab. They didn't try to integrate into that into their core business because the resources, processes, and priorities would have been in direct conflict with their existing core business model. So they separated it out as an autonomous business unit. And that, as you point to, allowed them to succeed along with additional support from outside VC funding. And I want to talk more about those models a little later. But one additional question before we break for part two. I loved your discussion of drivers of health, also known as social determinants of health, versus contextual care. And your story about the man in the Bronx when you were a young physician and what this patient said back to you when you suggested that he implements some healthier lifestyle choices. Could you help our listeners understand what you mean by this concept of contextual care and why it's critical to embed into care model design? So I have a whole chapter on contextual care in the book, and I, I think it's one of the most important, if not for me, that middle section. It's in the humanism section, along with with whole person care and, and, and some other topics. So people use the word contextual, and it has sort of an everyday meaning, but that's not that's not what... I mean by it. So there is a science of contextual care 
And we owe it actually to a physician and a PhD researcher who for the past two decades, literally two decades, have studied over 6,000 provider patient encounters and created a new science, a, a new approach to medicine, which they coined the term contextual care. And now their work is being adopted and being adopted by state-of-the-art, high-tech, AI-enabled companies, in particular one called Laguna Health, and I, I go into depth about this. The notion of contextual care, so whereas, and here's maybe the easiest way into it, and, and by the way, in the book I list out there are 12 contextual factors, and I go through those factors. The way to, to think about it, and the way I've reformulated it is in my mind, is that the social determinants of health are like macroeconomics. They are macro factors. Changing education, changing employment, changing housing, changing the infrastructure of communities, changing transportation. These are macro, macro factors that take time. And so it's, you know, food security. These are critically important, but they, they, they are macro. And we have to ask about them. And we are just at the beginning of that, right, in, 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 our, in our healthcare system. But at the same time, there is another thing, which is the micro to the macro. And just like you need microeconomics and macroeconomics, you need micro. And the micro factors are contextual. These are factors that change day to day, hour to hour. And the, what the scientists have demonstrated over the past two decades is if we ignore them, we are not going to get the outcomes we want in healthcare. We're not going to achieve humanistic healthcare and patients will suffer and we will suffer in trying to deliver healthcare. And for example, contextual factors are things like, like an immediate resource. So let's say I have someone who's been coming to my house and next week they're going on vacation, right? And so all of a sudden, and it just turns out that I just came out of the hospital. Well, you know what? That's a contextual factor because that will mean make all the difference in terms of outcomes, readmissions, et cetera, et cetera, my, you know, my health, my life even. Another one is responsibility. These are actual contextual factors that these guys have researched and studied and now are deploying. So there's a story about, a, they share just to give an example of responsibility. So there was a woman who was an older woman who was uh, on dialysis and she kept on missing occasionally, but frequently missed her hemodialysis appointments, and then ended up in the emergency room for emergency dialysis, which is terrible, costly, extremely costly, often ends up in an admission. It's dangerous. And, and they finally asked her, why do you keep on missing? And you know these are important, and we've talked to you about, and we've given you instruction, and we have engaged you, and why do you keep on missing it? We don't understand. It took them a long time to ask this question. And she shared with them that she was taking care of her grandson and her grandson was a special needs kid and he actually had to go to the hospital and sometimes his treatments conflicted with hers. And when that happened, she would decided to sacrifice herself for her grandson and she would go to the hospital for his treatment and sacrifice her hemodialysis. Now, of course, you're thinking to yourself, well, duh, why didn't she just tell her doctors or tell her hospitals or dialysis unit that she needed to reschedule or something like that? Let me ask you a question. I'm a doctor. I've been in healthcare for over 35 years. I find it incredibly daunting to tell the healthcare system anything. Who's, you know, I don't want to waste their time. They're smarter than I am. They're, you know, they're more important than I am. I'm scared. I'm nervous. I don't want to insult them. Imagine a frail old Hispanic woman really 
She's going to go tell the healthcare system something. I mean, that's not the way it works. And so, and it's so opaque and so complex. And so she just didn't even consider it a possibility. And what they did is they said, you know what, as it turns out, we can actually bring your grandson's treatment into the same, same place so you can deliver him go get your dialysis, and, and they solve the problem. That's a contextual factor. There are 12 of them. It, what it requires is identifying them, and right now that's embedded in AI technology, so the machine actually, the machines, the computers can actually identify them. Then it requires a human to investigate them first, to really get the core contextual factor. And then um, there's actually plans that have been created, action plans for these different uh, contextual factors. And so we have to, if we want to achieve the results we want. By the way, the science tells us right now that even if you capture all the social determinants of health, you will still miss 50% of the issues. And I believe that that lies in the contextual factors. Absolutely, because as you said, it's the macroeconomic view versus the microeconomic view. And you can't understand everything about someone's life if you're only flying at 10,000 feet above the ground. That's exactly right. We could talk about this book for hours, and I'm glad we have another episode to dive into last half of the book where we're going to talk about the titans of disruption and how you move from being disrupted to being the disruptor. I just want to take... A quick second to wrap up and thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today and highlight a couple things that I hope listeners walk away with. And the first is how you turned helplessness into hopefulness and the call to action that it, that is for all leaders across healthcare, that you are inspiring folks not to break down the walls. That's not what you mean by going beyond the walls. It's not about breaking them down or going outside of them, but it's about making the walls irrelevant in order to look at the problem differently so we might solve it effectively. You reminded us that incumbents must keep potentially disruptive business models separated from the core. This is easier said than done, but it is critical. And... Lastly, you talked about how drivers of health are the macro factors, like macroeconomics. But contextual care is on the micro level. That's the day-to-day life that people are living. And if we want to impact people's health, we can't forget the contextual factors. So thank you so much, Zev, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. And Summers, I'm, I'm going to have to listen to this because you, you did such a great job summarizing it, but you really captured it. Thank you so much. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you for listening to Life-Centered Healthcare. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And for more of the latest in healthcare, check out our website, christiansoninstitute.org. You can sign up for our newsletter and read our latest industry insights. Until next time, have a wonderful day, everyone.